You want to open your in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 21. The center of all history is Christ. That's what all of these books are leading us to, is, uh, is, a, focus on, is a focus on our Lord. And we have uh, these wonderful books in the Old and New, Te- New Testament that all testify to the same thing. And that is uh, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. We have this wonderful history. We are a part of history. We're not just... In, um, in our own lives, disconnected from the history that is in the Bible. But the Bible is God's word, but it's also a history book. And it tells us the right history of the world. It's very interesting. You can't find, you, you go outside of the Bible, where do you go for the history of the world? Well, you can go back and you can study certain empires and and so on in, in all sorts of different texts. But where do you go back and you find, you would, you would surely think that there would be some kind of manual, some kind of text, where you could go back and you could say, oh, here's the beginning of, of how things happened. And yet we have really nothing other than myths outside of the Scripture, and that's because the Scripture is reality. The Scripture takes us back to the very beginning, and it gives us an explanation for those things that we often think about. Where are we from? Why are we here? Who made us? And uh, surely there would be some written record of it. That's why this this whole notion of evolution is so foolish. To think of the fact that we have to have scholars in the last couple hundred years now tell us exactly where we came from, apart from the reality of Scripture, and tell us that really what happened was is uh, over millions of years we evolved from monkeys. How absurd. Surely you would have um, stories and written records of, you know, uh, well, there are stories of um, our great-great-great-great-grandfather kind of looking extra hairy and uh, a, a little bit monkey-like, you know, 6,000 years ago. We have no record of that, no record of any of that, little handwritten Pictures, even on cave walls, of going from monkey to man. There's no stories like that until we, until all of a sudden we become so smart in the last couple hundred years, and now we have uh, have it all figured out that this is exactly what happened. And of course, it's absurd. I was recently sharing with older people in the nursing home that uh, if this continues and and the Earth continues, that someday. This whole theory of evolution will be seen as ridiculous as the Greek gods. We'll look back and the world will have moved on. We'll think, how in the world did anyone believe that? But many people did believe that. But what we have here is not a disconnected account of religion. We have an account here, a a real account of, of history. And so what we have is we have the beginning in Genesis telling us exactly how it all began, and it sweeps through, and it tells us where we came from and why we're here, and we're here for one person alone, the glory of one person, and that is the glory of Christ. Christ is the center of all of history. And so as we get to our account here this morning, that is becoming more and more clear as eyes are being opened, and we get to see who Jesus really is. 
And we start off with rather a mundane account of how things happened here on this particular Sunday a couple thousand years ago. You have at the beginning of the week what we call the triumphal, triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Later that same week on a Friday, Christ would be crucified. So we're, we're talking about the span of one week. We have the beginning of the week just as we have today. We have a Sunday and we move through Monday, Tuesday, and so on. By the time that we get to Friday, all of a sudden Christ has gone from acclaimed hero to hanging on the cross. How does that happen within the span of mere days where Christ is seen as this wonder worker? He's seen as this majestic figure who works all of these miracles. And by the end of that very same week, not a month later, not a year later, it's not after people thought and became more and more disappointed. No, no. This is during the same exact week that what we are going to look at this morning happened. Later that same week, Christ was crucified. But it begins, this whole narrative begins with, with the rather mundane. Christ has his focus clearly on the scriptures. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in tune with his Father. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is himself the God-man. He's in full control of his destiny. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he's going to use two disciples to begin to carry out what we know as Palm Sunday. Turn in your Bibles with me here to um, Matthew chapter 21. It says this, And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Now let's just stop there. We know that the Mount of Olives is, has already and is going to play a massive part in history. We saw in the book of Zechariah that when the Lord comes again, he's going to come at his second coming, not just at his first coming, but the second coming, the coming that we are waiting for. And he is going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. In fact, the Mount of Olives, Zechariah tells us, is going to split. This Mount of Olives you can actually go and see today. It's this beautiful elevated hill. In fact, it's a, a ridge, and you can see down over the city of Jerusalem. You can see this pan, panoramic view of the city. It's this uh, gorgeous view. And so when we're reading this text, it's not just about some kind of hill that we have no clue where it is. In fact, it's been a long-time goal of mine. I don't know if the Lord will ever grant it, but to be able to go to Israel and tour some of these different sites and different places. But the Lord, when he left after his first coming, left from the Mount of Olives. And you can see that in Acts, the first chapter. And here we are in Matthew chapter 21, and we have the Mount of Olives again. So we are centered on a specific geographic location. And so he and his disciples, as they draw near to Jerusalem and come to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples. And this is a rather regular activity. We're not sure exactly who these two disciples are. Luke chapter 22, verse 8, in preparation for the Passover, which is going to come a little bit later, he sends out Peter and John. So it's quite possible that he sends these two particular disciples out. We don't know, but it seems like that's quite possible. And he says to them, I want you to do a very regular and basic thing. Verse 2, 
saying to them, go into the village in front of you. I want you to go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. A donkey, a common beast of burden, and a colt with her. So you're going to go into this town. You're going to find a donkey, and you're also going to find this donkey, this mother who is a donkey. You're going to find her colt with her, her baby. Now this um, this colt is obviously a little bit bigger. This is not a colt that has just been born. It has it has grown up to some extent, and in fact, it's going to be able to be ridden. It has never never been ridden before. But you have a donkey and you have a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. So if we're Looking at this, this whole beginning of this whole account of Palm Sunday, it starts out here with kind of a, a, a close-up picture. This picture that's up close, just in history, a regular seeming account of everyday activity. The Lord is just saying to his two disciples, here's what I want you to do in your life right now. I want you to go find this donkey. I want you to find the colt, and I want you to untie them and bring them to me. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So this is kind of unique. You're to go find this donkey. You're to find this colt. It's going to be owned by someone else, and you're to take it. Now, this might seem a little bit strange, but the Lord is the Lord of everything. In fact, he tells them when you talk to the owner... And if the owner begins to ask you what is going on, you're to simply say the Lord needs them. There's going to be some kind of understanding. So this is not theft. The Lord is the Lord of holiness, and uh, he would never just go and take anybody's anything without the proper methods. So he says, I want you to go, and I want you to get this donkey and her colt. And when you are asked about it, just simply say the Lord that is the Lord of everything. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is in need of them. So here we have this close-up. This close-up picture of what seems like just regular, everyday life. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So they do it. The Lord comes and he says, Regular life. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find a donkey. I want you to find the colt. And I want you to simply do this. This might have taken a step of faith. Lord, do we know the people? What's going to happen when we when we come up here and we're untying this thing? And the Lord's saying, listen, I'm going to take care of it. This is a, a matter of obedience. Everyday obedience. Listening to the Lord and saying, yes, sir, Lord, whatever you say, Lord, whatever you want me to do in my life, that's what I'll do. When we are, when we are called to be Christians, it's not just a confession of faith. It's not just coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I come to you and I acknowledge that you're Lord and Savior. But it's actually coming to a place in our life where we say those things and we mean them with our heart. 
But it goes beyond that to saying, Lord, I will be obedient to you. Lord, whatever it is that you ask me in my life, if you ask me to go get a donkey and her colt, that's exactly what I'll do. Lord, the things that I see in Scripture, Lord, my heart burns and yearns to do them. Lord, I don't always do them the way that I should do them, but Lord, that is my desire. If we could, um, if we could describe the world and the way the world lives, one word that we could describe the world as is with the word disobedient. No Lord, no master, simply people going around in life doing exactly what they want to do, waking up every day, making their own decisions based upon what they think is best for their life. Without Christ, of course, we don't see that we do have an invisible master. Because the Bible is clear that we will either, in the regular events of life, either be following the Lord. So, this isn't, Lord, I'll just follow you in big things. Lord, when you really show up, then I'll begin to obey you. Lord, I'll start to obey you when you actually to tell me to do something big. For instance, Lord, if I'm, if I'm called to be a foreign missionary, then, Lord, I'll begin to pay attention. No, a, a Christian's life, listen carefully, a Christian's life is marked by holiness. There should be a difference in the way that we live. In the book of Jacob, or the book of James, his Hebrew name being Jacob, he says it very simply and very clearly. He says this, faith without works is dead. There's a, there's a transformation that takes place. We go from being our own master and doing whatever we want to do, and we begin to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As given through the pages of Scripture, we see what his word commands and even demands of our life. And instead of resisting that, we come to a place in our hearts where we say, Lord, I not only will do your will, I'll not only go get the donkey, but Lord, I'll do it willingly. I'll do it from a heart that says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So there's this infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to yield to his daily call. This matter of obedience, this matter of holiness. So we go from the place of being unholy and disobedient to coming to the place of where we say to the Lord, yes. And this takes wrestling. You know, any, any decision to come to Christ that's just split second or even somebody's raised in it and so it all seems to come so easy. You know, just split second decisions. I said, I said uh, a, a prayer with mom or dad or I was raised in the church. Each one of us is called to come to this moment in our life of real wrestling with the Lord. Of where we're saying, this is real, as we talked about, this is real history, this is real time. There, there comes a point where we say, Lord, I, I realize this is a big deal in my life. When I come to you, it means no longer am I going to call the shots in my life. That's a big deal. 
That, that, that really says something. A person isn't just saying, I'm going along with Christianity. They're actually doing business with God. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's this weightiness that, um, that is sensed. You mean, Lord, you're asking me to actually yield over to you my life? My life. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. We even sing that song in our church. If you say go, I'll go. If you say stay, I'll stay. But it comes down to the little things in our life. The little matters that really aren't so little. Little do these two fellows know that they are going to be part of a massive, massive part of history. And I wonder if after the Lord in heaven, someday when we're standing before him, that is, if we die and we go to heaven or we meet him in the air and come back to earth, there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to show us snapshots of our life where he says, remember that little event in your life you thought it was just little and you were obedient? Remember you did that thing when I was calling you to do, and you were convicted about it. You were convicted by the Holy Spirit's power to do something. And you thought it was just as simple as going to get a donkey. And you might have wrestled a little bit about that. You might have even been a little bit nervous about talking to the owner and all of that. Perhaps a little bit apprehensive. Perhaps you even thought, why can't Andrew go get the donkey? I mean, Andrew's just... He's lazy. I mean, he doesn't seem to do anything around here. But you did it. And the Lord says, let me show you how that little act of obedience, Peter, or how that little act of obedience, John, was part of something that you weren't able to see at the time, something that was so beautiful and so important. But it starts with this close-up shot of regular obedience, obedient disciples simply doing the will of God. Look with me at Acts chapter 6, please. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Here it is. And a great many of the priests. Now here's something. Here's religious people. These are teachers of the law. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They got to the point where there was, it was an issue of obedience. Yes, we will have faith in Christ. And yes, the life will result in works of Obedience. Romans chapter 6, if you flip over there to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse starting in verse 16, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads of righteousness, or to righteousness. Verse 17. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. What a difference. The Bible says here you are once slaves of unrighteousness and you get to a point in your life where you are now a slave owned by your master, the master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And now you're slaves of you're slaves of righteousness. What a, what a beautiful thought. And maybe um, we could even just take a, a moment even now uh, this morning to ask ourselves, Lord, what is it in our lives you're calling us to be obedient to? Lord, what are, what are the things that you are wrestling with our hearts about? What donkey are you telling us to go get? And her colt. That we simply need to get to a point in our heart where we say, yes, Lord. So that is the, that is the snapshot here. That's the close-up of what is going on. It begins with the Lord simply telling his two disciples to go get the donkey and her colt. But then there's this panoramic, this wide sweep picture of what is actually going on here. We have the small picture, and now we have the wide lens. We have the big picture. And sometimes it's good to get real close and to look intently at something and to see the small picture. And sometimes we have to step away to see what is going on in the big picture. And here's what's going on in the big picture. Go back to your text, please. Matthew chapter 21. So he sends these two out to get the animals. And it says that this took place. Here is the point. Here is the focal point of this text. This took place to fulfill. What were these guys doing? They were simply going to get a donkey. All of this is taking place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, there's actually a couple prophets being quoted here. Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 62, is the first line of this quote, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, that comes from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. But then the next part of this verse comes from the study that we have been going through in Zechariah chapter 9, where Zechariah had prophesied that there was a king who was going to come and it wouldn't be a king who is going to come with a huge band of elephants and soldiers and swords and powerful horses and an arsenal of weapons. But he comes on the symbol of peace. This is the king that Zechariah was prophesying about. Behold, your king is coming to you. Not only a king, but the king, the king of kings, the king of all ages, the king who reigns over the entire universe. And if he said that these things are going to happen and we're seeing them happen in the pages of this scripture, then surely the other prophecies that were given are also going to happen just as literally. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
not pompous and arrogantly, but your, coming, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here the Lord is going to fulfill this. And somebody says, well, anybody could do that. Anybody could look at the pages of Scripture. This is just a self-fulfillment. Anybody could go get a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. And uh, that's true. Anybody could get a donkey. But it would be very hard to manufacture all the crowds who are going to come out and see him. The Lord isn't just manufacturing something. He is the fulfillment of what is going on. Listen, if, if one of us were to go get a donkey and say that we're going to ride into Wilkesbury, there might be uh, one or two people wondering what is going on. Some passerbys in the cars wondering why is the guy riding down. But I can promise you there's going to be no massive crowd uh, adoring and um, and loving what is happening, that simply wouldn't happen. But this is definitely a message of peace. The first coming was a message of peace, not a message with a sword. It was a message of repent of your sins. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here. The fulfillment of these things is happening right now. Turn back with me to uh, Zechariah chapter 9. You'll see this in the scripture. Zechariah chapter 9, verse Nine. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Here it is. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now notice it stops there. It doesn't go into, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and so on. Why? Because the Lord did not come with his first coming as a man of war, but he came as a man of peace. So here he is coming into Jerusalem. He says, go get the, the donkey, go get this colt. He's going to ride this cult, this cult that has never been ridden. And because of all the signs that he had been doing, and in particular uh, the sign with uh, Lazarus, when Lazarus had been raised from the dead, word was beginning to spread about Jesus. And so word is spreading, and people are saying, hey, Jesus is coming into town. And they know him as a miracle worker. They know him as somebody who does great signs. And so they say that we have to go see him. Now, he must have not been a huge man. It's interesting. We don't have any picture of Jesus, a physical picture. It be interesting to know what he looked like. We, we do know this. He was not a fair white man with, with uh, blue eyes and uh, blonde hair. That was not Christ. He was of uh, Middle Eastern descent. He was an Israelite. He was a Jew. So surely he would have been darker. He was probably not a very large man as he could ride on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's not coming in on a Clydesdale. And as word is spreading, so now the two disciples have gone to get this donkey. They've gone to get her colt. They're obedient in what Christ has told them to do. 
This is to fulfill the scripture, the scripture in particular that is talked about and spoken of in the book of Zechariah. They do exactly as Jesus tells them to do, and now Jesus begins to ride into Jerusalem. So we have this coming from the Mount of Olives, and now he's winding his way about six kilometers from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. So here's what they do. So we have the small picture. We have the big picture of what's happening in the scope of Scripture. But here's what happens in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So they say, Jesus, we're, we're going to set you on this donkey, this colt. We're going to put our cloaks on that. And he begins to ride it. Now, the mother donkey was with the, the younger one probably to keep it calm. This thing had never been broken. It had never been ridden. Now, most of us are not farmers. Some of us have had experience, experiences with horses and colts. But it takes a while to break a colt. But here, uh, as Carson talks about, the master who can calm the seas is able to calm this colt. And so he's riding this colt, and you would think that Jesus would be full of happiness. There was great joy in God, but the, the text of Scripture in another gospel tells us that as he ends up winding his way through and leaving, he ends up leaping over the city. But for the moment, it's a, it's a happy time. It's a joyous occasion. And as he's coming in, because of the fact that he's a wonder worker and because of all of the things that he has done, it says here in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. This was an oriental tradition. It goes back to the Old Testament. You can see when Jehu rode in, they would put their cloaks on the ground as a sign of honor. And others cut branches. Now, John tells us these are, these are palm branches. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. So they lay down their cloaks. They lay down their clothes on the ground. They lay down palm branches on the ground from the trees, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, tens of thousands of people, are gathering. And as the crowds are going before him, and that followed him, they were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means, oh, save now. Now they had the picture of the kingdom. And in their mind, the Messiah was going to come. He was a political figure. He was going to overthrow Israel's enemies, and they were going to set Jesus Christ up as king, just like the king that we think of coming in the second coming. That's what they were thinking in their mind. Here he's been doing all these wonderful miracles, these wonderful works. We're going to set him up as king. And this text is telling us he is the king. They got it right. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is the fulfillment of that. Christ is the king. They got some of the timing of it wrong. They didn't understand that he wasn't going to usher in a new age at that moment, vanquish all of their enemies. That's what they wanted. That's what they were thinking was going to happen. And so they begin to shout, Hosanna, oh, save now. Now at this point, most of them are not shouting, Oh, save now from their sins. That's not what they're shouting. They're shouting, oh, save us from Rome. 
Save us from the oppressors. Save, save us from our enemies. You're the king. What the Lord wants from us is when we come to a, a point in our life where we're saying, Lord, save us from our sins. There's a cry, a, a cry from the heart. This is, Lord, save us. Hosanna, it's a beautiful picture. Hosanna to the son of David. They got it right. Hosanna to the son of David. He comes in the line of David, but yet he was greater than David. How's that possible? He's his son, and he's also his Lord. Well, he comes down through the Davidic line, but he's also the Ancient of Days. He's the one from whom David sprang, so he's both his Lord and his son. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Stunning picture. Thousands of people. We go out to all sorts of different parades. I've never been to a parade just for one man. You know, we have parades for presidents and kings and so on. I've never been to a, a parade like this. Thousands of people just watching one man. Think of the popularity. Think of the power he had. And this is not this is not Jesus Christ did some things in secret. This is the crowds loved him. They knew of his works. They knew that he was not a con man. They had never seen anything like this before in the history of the world. Never a man like this. And so you have this majestic figure, although he's humble, there's this humble authority with Christ. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's why we um, sung this morning, Hosanna. And uh, hopefully we'll sing it here in just a, a few minutes. It's the rightful song, Oh Save Now, and it should stir up joy within our hearts as we're, as we're singing it. And you can imagine in Revelation it talks about that final crowd waving palm branches before the Lord. And as he entered Jerusalem, verse 10, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So there are many people who knew exactly what was going on. They knew who Christ was, at least to some extent. And there were other people in this massive city who were saying, who is it that all these thousands of people are going out to see? And the crowd said, as there's the whispering, there's the talking about who is this man, verse 11. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They got it right. He was a prophet. They got it right with all of the rightful worship. In fact, uh, some of the religious leaders told Jesus during this episode, they said, tell the people to stop. Stop the worship. Stop, stop all the adoration. Stop all the praise. And Jesus said to them, he said, if, um, if they don't praise me, he said, the rocks will cry out and praise. Jesus didn't say, stop the worship. That's not who I am. You don't know who I am. I'm just a regular man like you. No, that's not what he said. He rebuked the religious leaders for not worshiping him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they get all this right. They get right the fact that he is Jesus. 
but they don't really get them. They see them. They understand him to some extent. They got the fact that he's a miracle worker right. They got the fact that he's a prophet right. They got the fact that he's a son of David right. They got all of these different things right. They even got right that it's right to come out and to praise him. That's right. They got the fact that he is the king right. That's all correct. But they didn't understand him as their savior. And this is why perhaps not all of them, but many of them, later that same week, the crowds that would be yelling, Hosanna in the highest, many of those same people would also be shouting on Friday, crucify him, crucify him. It's so important to really get who Christ is. It's possible to see him and not see him. It's possible to praise him and not praise him. It's possible to read about him and not really read about him. Let's say this in, in closing. And it comes back to this whole matter of obedience that we began with. Not receiving Christ on his terms may start off looking convincingly real. So to not receive Christ on his terms might at the beginning look convincingly real. If you would have said, are you a believer in Christ to these people? They said, oh yeah, yeah, there he is. He's the king. Singing, dancing, shouting, all of those different things, Hosanna and so on. Not receiving Christ on his terms may start off looking convincingly real. But in a matter of time will reveal itself to be shallow. And indeed ugly. And this is why as he would wind through and he would end up leaving the city, he would begin to weep. And he would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew the day of your visitation. You, you understood these things to a certain point. But it wasn't authentic. It wasn't. There was no depth there. It wasn't, it wasn't real. We have the joy here of knowing who Christ really is. We have the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. Many of the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to Christ, we can see the fulfillment. And many of us, when we sing Hosanna this morning, sing it from a heart that has been regenerated and changed. And oh, it is a wonderful time to sing, to say, Lord, we, we sing Hosanna to you from our heart. But I have to wonder if there's anyone here, perhaps even one, who has seen Christ but hasn't really seen him. So for us who have seen him, it's a, it's a moment to rejoice. It's a moment to say thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to Christ. But perhaps for someone it's, it's possible that we come into this place and we've seen him to an extent, but our eyes, our spiritual eyes, have not truly seen him. 
And my prayer is that this morning that those of us who have get a deeper joy in Christ than ever before. That our worship is deepened. Our obedience to the things of God in the scripture are deepened. The things that he is speaking to so clearly, we come back over and over again to the fact that we are no longer disobedient children, slaves to sin, but now obedient children, slaves to righteousness. We come back to that place and we worship him. And we say, Lord, deepen those things in our life. I could ask you if there's maybe one thing, believer, not unbeliever, believer, here this morning. And perhaps the Lord is speaking and he's saying there's that one thing in your life I'm asking you to be obedient on. And the Lord is saying, would you, would you give that up? Would you say, yes, Lord? Today is a day of saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, whatever that is, I'll do your will. And perhaps for someone else, it's, I've never seen Christ like this before, and I want to be obedient to the faith. I want to come to faith in Christ. And that's for you this morning. That call goes to anyone who's listening. If you will hear and open your ears and heart, you can find and see Christ today. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for this, this beautiful picture of this triumphant entry. It was a triumph. But perhaps it wasn't a triumph, at least in the way that the crowds were thinking of that day. And Lord, we don't want to miss you. We don't want to be hearing and not hearing, seeing and not really seeing. And so Lord, I would ask you today that you would speak to our hearts as believers and that we would be able to say, yes, Lord, we'll go get the donkey. We'll go get the donkey. That's what you call us to do. Yes, Lord. I'm not going to embarrass you, call anybody up, but if you're a believer here today and you're just saying, yeah, the Lord's speaking to my life about some things, about just saying yes to him. Yes, I'll go get the colt. And that's between you and the Lord, but that's what he's doing in your life here today. Would you slip your hand up and just say, I'm, I want to say yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Anyone else? Some of those hands, anyone else? The Lord is speaking to you. Thank you, Lord. And before we leave, I want to ask a second question. Perhaps you don't know the Lord. You've never really come to him. Perhaps you've gone to church a long time, but you've never really received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You, if, if you were to die today, you could not say with, uh, with assurance that you would end up in heaven with Christ. But today is the day that you want to say, I get it now. I don't understand everything, and you don't need to, but I, I understand the fact that I have to come to Christ for salvation. And if that's you, would you raise your hand first time? Not second time. This isn't a recommitment. Anyone here says, I need Christ for the first time. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for those who have raised their hands. And, and God, we ask you uh, that you would bring us to that place again and again in our life. Where we'll say, yes, it might seem really small, small stuff, small potatoes. 
but you're calling us back to that place again and again. And Lord, we want to stand before you someday and say, by grace we've been saved. And you empowered us, O oh Lord, to say yes, to say yes. And so as we sing uh, the song Hosanna, we sing it from a heart, a heart that's willing, a heart that's obedient. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen and amen.